Absolutely. I mean, everywhere I went, they said, Oh, you're a Kikoku Shijo. Ah, that's why. And I had no idea what that meant. But、um, I think it was referred to、uh, mostly when I spoke my opinion or you know, told them what I thought. Because back in the day, of course, and being an idol singer, we all had to just smile and say, Hi, yes, hi, you know. And、uh, anytime I didn't do that or I would ask why, the adults around me would say, You know, And I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> so、um, I had a really hard time with、um, I definitely had an identity crisis because I was trying to fit in as a typical Japanese idol singer. And at the same time,、um, I was trying to get used to being a Japanese、uh, high school student. Uh, welcome to the 58th episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest is a singer and actress. In 2011, the Japanese music television program Music Station listed her as the 50th all time best selling idol in Japan, with 2.8 million records sold to date. She was born in Japan and raised in Guam and Hawaii, and eventually moved back to Japan at the age of 14, where she attended ASIJ for one year from 1981 to 1982. She would later enter Sophia University, receiving a bachelor's degree in comparative culture. In 1982, she released her first single, Isoi de Hatsukoi. In 1983, her fifth single, Natsuhiro no Nanshi, became her first big hit, making it to the top 10 of the charts, winning countless awards that year. As a result of the success of the song, she made her first appearance at the 34th edition of the year end NHK Kohaku Red and White Song Festival. In recent years, she's become more involved with acting on television. Along with being a presenter on the radio, along with many other projects.、Uh, welcome to the podcast, you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Wow, that's kind of mind boggling. How'd you find out all that information? You're amazing. <laughs> Google, Google. There's, it was,、uh, yeah, it's a lot, a lot on you. I think I actually cut, cut down a lot of it,、uh, but hopefully we can sort of、uh, um, get, get into a bit more depth about the things maybe that I didn't cover there.、Um, you know, and,、uh, What's very interesting about your relationship with the international schools is not only did you attend as a student, but you're also currently a mother of、mm. a student at an international school, well, at ASIJ to be specific. And、uh, your older daughter also graduated ASIJ. So、um, I'd be very interested to talk to you about sort of your perspective as a parent versus being a student.、Mm. And of course, your very long career in the、uh, showbiz business. Um, but uh, let's uh, sort of rewind all the way back to the earliest days. You're born in Japan, Natami, and、uh, later on you went to Guam and Hawaii,、um, where you were there until age 14.、Uh, but what took you back to Japan at age 14? So,、um, at four, when I was 14, my mother and I were in an elevator、um, at a department store in Waikiki, which is in Honolulu, on Oahu Island. And this、uh, person scouted me. She asked me to sing a few bars of a song to see if I could carry a tune, which I did. And then they flew me over to Japan to go through an audition. And that was before I knew it, that was in August. By October, I had moved back to Japan and、um, I was meeting record, you know, record label VIPs and、um, just getting ready for my debut. And not only is this happening fast, but this is all happening at age 14, right? Roughly a high school freshman. So, 
how were you able to sort of juggle all these emotions and changes and being under this high pressure at such a young age? Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me that. And I think for me, it just seemed really exciting at the time. I didn't really think of the consequences of, you know, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to live with my mom and my grandmother for a while, whom, you know, I grew up with, or I have to change schools, or I'm going to go into a di totally different new environment, and I'm going to be, you know, sort of put into this odd um, world of show business. For me, it was just sort of, oh, we're taking pictures. Oh, we're singing. Oh, I'm doing an audition. Wow, this is kind of fun. Wow, today seemed like a short day. Okay. And, you know, I would go to bed, but it just happened so fast. Um, it was really exciting. I loved singing. So my parents were divorced when I was three, but my father was a jazz singer. Although we moved around, he was, you know, in, in Japan. So um, when I came back, I was able to see him and tell him that I would pursue a career of singing and he was really excited. So I think I've always loved singing. And uh, when the opportunity came, I thought, oh, this sounds like fun. I'll, I'll, I'll try it out. I, you know, I think that's how, what you think when you're a teenager. You don't think this is going to be a, a career for you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, you know, when you started this, singing so you said your, your father it was a jazz musician so i imagine he was just elated you with you singing uh but was there any pushback by people around you saying you know you should like finish school first or like or w would it affect your studies oh definitely so um one of the qualifications that my grandmother told my agency's shacho president was that she needs to finish high school and hopefully go to college because education is important. So um, the Shacho, the president, promised that I would definitely finish high school, of course. And she demanded that I was put into an international school because she said, you know, we're, she's, we're from Hawaii. Um, English was, you know, our second language, or my, my second language. So they put me into the American school. And I remember my manager saying, do you know how much the American school costs? <laughs> Which is probably about one tenth of what it does now. But I'm like, I have no idea. But it was fine. And, you know, I, I love the new environment. And I just love the ASIJ vibe because being in Hawaii, I've always felt that I was, um, I was Japanese, you know, or I had to really have a concrete idea of an identity of who I was or where I came from. And at ASIJ, I just felt like it was, everyone was really comfortable. You know, there were people who had parents from the U.S. but were born in, the, in, in Japan who had blonde hair, blue eyes, but they really felt a connection with Japan or, or you know, vice versa, like an Asian American, I guess you would say. You know, someone who looked like me, Japanese by blood or by I don't know how to politically correctly say this. You know, my, my kids are so strict about me talking about this these days. But um, but basically, you know, so it was just a mixture of multicultural people. And it was, I, I just felt so comfortable. And I thought, wow, I never knew a world like this existed. You know, it was really sad when I had to transfer to a Japanese school because of my work. Yeah, you. Uh, we were talking a bit about that off air. Your, your tenure at ASIJ actually wasn't, that long, but you, you you really seem to enjoy your time there. And, you know, I think identity is a common theme throughout this podcast. And you being in Japan, you know, once you did leave ASIJ and were completely, you know, sort of in this Japanese, Japanese atmosphere, did you ever feel like 
it was a challenge in regards to sort of integrating to that society around you uh, who maybe didn't look at you as being sort of part of their, you know, quote unquote, Japanese uh, society. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everywhere I went, they said, oh, you're a kikoku shijo. Ah, that's why. And I had no idea what that meant. But um, I think it was referred to uh, mostly when I spoke my opinion or, you know, told them what I thought. Because back in the day, of course, and being an idol singer, we all had to just smile and say, hi, yes, hi, you know. And uh, anytime I didn't do that or I would ask why, the adults around me would say, you know, and I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> right? So um, I had a really hard time with, um, I definitely had an identity crisis because I was trying to fit in as a typical Japanese idol singer. And at the same time, um, I was trying to get used to being a Japanese uh, high school student. Mm. And um, I, I just really missed being in touch with the westernized side mm. of, of myself and my friends and um i i just remember i struggled yeah for mm. at least five years i think yeah do you feel like um during especially your earlier years as you know when, when you're singing were there any other people in the show business um arena that you could sort of relate to that were either hafu or kikokushijo or you know or just um, not Japanese. Yes. So, do you know rock singer uh, Anne Lewis? Yes. Um, I, I believe uh, you Baby, covered Baby. a song by her in 2016, oh. right? And I want to, I want to get to that later. But yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, Anne is. Uh, I think she's about 10 years my senpai, 10 years older than I am, career-wise, maybe a little more. But, um, and you know, in Japan, it's all about senpai kohai. So when I first met her, I said, hajimemashite, yoroshiku onegaishimasu, you know, um, as a kohai should do. And she was like, oh, come on. I know you're from Hawaii. She goes, come on, let's talk, let's talk English. Let's speak in English. Let's get to be friends. And we just hit it off. I mean, and she took me under her wings and, you know, we just became really good friends. And I just remember um, she and... Teresa Tensan, she's a singer from uh, Taiwan. Mm. I think those two were the only ones I felt completely uh, myself with. You know, I could speak in English, I could be myself, I could talk about, I don't know, my love life, which I wasn't supposed to have, or which you're not supposed to have when you're an idol singer in Japan, even now. So, um, mm. yeah, that was definitely. You know, I mean, I, I, when I look back on it, if I didn't have that, I would have gone crazy, I think. That, that's really makes sort of this, I, I think we're just going to jump forward. Um, I like to go chronologically, but be, while we're on the topic of An Luisa, um, you know, in 2016, uh, there was a song you released. It was a cover of, I believe, An Luisa originally sang it, and it became one of the theme songs for the SDGs. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, what was the whole process of getting together, or I, I think it was... Uh, it was uh, Takashi Fuji, right, who right. was also uh, quite a prominent, uh, you know, producer in Japan as well as a former singer. I guess he sings a little bit still now too, but I think he does more producing. Oh, he, he does. Oh. He, he sings, yes. How did that all come about? And uh, was that a, was that you who sort of pushed forward the idea of covering an Andoisa song, or is it um, Fuji's idea? The idea of covering and song Koi no Bugi Train was my idea. 
So Fuji Takashi-san, who's a big fan of um, just idol singers back in the 80s, uh, we had met, of course, we met a few times, but he came on a show that I was um, co-hosting called Disco Train. And it, it's a show where you just sit down and talk about all your favorite music, which is really a, I mean, it's a great show. It was a great show. And he sat there and he said, you know, I actually um, just came up with my new record company or record label and we're looking for artists. So I jokingly said, oh, maybe you can produce me. And he goes, really? And I, th I think that was a year before that. And then 2015, we started, you know, talking about what we could cover. And he really wanted to do, we, he wanted to take my old songs and rearrange them by, get, get them rearranged by disc jockeys that, or DJs of the time now. And so he had chosen a few songs and I said, I really want to sing this song. So I, um, I gave it to him. The arrangement came out great. And in the midst of all this, famous photographer Leslie Key said he wanted to shoot my cover for the album. And so he came on board and then he heard the songs and he said, can I take this song, maybe make it a theme song for Kokuden, the United Nations SDGs, because they're looking for something like this. And I think this would be perfect. So I was like, oh yeah, sure. You know, I mean, this was all over, like on the phone, five minutes here, five minutes there. And before I knew it, he, Leslie came up with this uh, tie up. And he said, United Nations is really excited. It's a great song. I want to shoot um, a music video on it. And yeah, next thing I know, he had like a hundred people that he had contacted, you know, models, actresses, and they all just came to the studio. It was all, you know, volunteer bases. And they all did it for Leslie and for the cause. Wow. And so that was really exciting. Yeah. And um, a good 14 years prior to this video, in 92, if I'm not mistaken, you partook in the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. And, you know, your college major was also comparative studies. So has this concept of sort of globalism and um, global issues, has that always sort of been in the forefront of what you do outside of you know, the showbiz career and how do you try to integrate I mean, you kind of already brought up a great example of integrating showbiz political action like the music video but are there any other examples in your career where you've been able to sort of embed you know these type of uh i guess political social changes through show business so yes so in 1992 um i went to Rio to Brazil um, as a representative of this NPO. Now I think it's an NGO uh, group called Jose Renakukai, which is headed by the um, lyricist uh, Yukawa Reiko Sensei. And, you know, basically they wanted me to learn about global warming and they wanted me to come back with a message about reducing or um, rethinking our lifestyle because of, because of consuming, right? Um, consumerism. And I think now they call it the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. But basically, uh, 1992, we didn't have an internet. So I would go to meetings and I would actually call them from a public phone with coins, uh, speaking to a, um, uh, a reporter who wrote, wrote for the, who wrote columns for newspapers back then, and give them my take of what I learned that day. And all they really wanted was sort of a perspective of, you know, someone from their 20s had a public name, right? So people would be like, oh, look, you know, maybe Yu Hayami is interested in it. Maybe we should maybe start uh, reassessing our lifestyle. 
And so that's why I went. And um, I came back and I, every time I was interviewed about anything, because I was single back then, they would of course ask me about my private life and my love life. I would try to squeeze in what I learned <laughs> in Rio. And I said, and by the way, you know, our garbage, um, they're going to be, they're going to start charging for our garbage. You know? And everyone's like, what? I'm like, yeah. And whenever you can, we should recycle because recycling is good. But of course, that part would always be cut out. Or they would look at me and look at me kind of strangely and say, why are you so interested in garbage? And I'm like, because people will have to be in a few years. <laughs> but um, of course, we've come a long way since then. And yeah. I, I'm just so thankful to Yuka Sensei that she chose me because I remember when she spoke to me, I said, I don't know anything about this. I'm not a politician. I, I This is just, I don't know. It's I don't think I'm the right person. She goes, well, of course you're the right person. You eat, you sleep, you live, don't you? <laughs> you know, everyone does that. So you're just, and, and you have an opinion, which is good. And um, I can't believe it's, it was 92. Gosh, it's such a long time already. Yeah, it's um, that 92 and then the video 2016. So talking about uh, a span of, of, of over 20 years. And um, when it comes to the SDGs, you know, we've addressed gender equity, um, environmentalism. Is there any one that you specifically feel strong about in regards to sort of, you know, as we enter? Our, I think the, the, it was rewritten recently, right? Uh, to uh, They've changed their sort of goal date to 2030, because I think the original SDGs were for 2020. So yes. um, are there any ones that you feel particularly passionate about as we sort of move each year closer and closer to 2030? Right. Well, definitely gender equality. You know, the other day I had, um, I took part in a, a Zoom conference that my older daughter uh, was part of. It was some, it was part of her college activity. And it was interesting, you know, the hostess, she introduced herself as, I forgot her name, but she said, hi, I'm Kathy. I identify as a she, he, her. And she went on and then everyone else introduced themselves that way and i thought wow you know time's really changing and i thought that's great that you could just be so upfront like that you know in the very beginning and so gender equality definitely um equal education oh definitely because we know how important education is and and i don't mean just general education but just education about everything and even i'm learning through my daughters because anytime i say anything politically incorrect she goes mom please don't say that that's you just can't get you can't say that anymore and so I'm just like okay I have to really <laughs> I have to keep up with the times and because even if your belief or you know is not how do you say um clouded the way we are used to expressing ourselves and the way we should be expressing ourselves is different right so that's mm. educating ourselves. So, yeah, that's a great point. And I, I know what you mean with the the generation change too. Like it's it's overall, I would agree, it's positive. I mean, I'm relatively young. I, again, it depends on who, right? Everything's relative. I, I always feel a bit older because I'm always with sixteen year olds, seventeen year olds. So, like <laughs> as a high school teacher, um, but even between my generation and the current high schoolers. 
um, you know, I, I look back when I was in high school and there were just certain words that, you know, we would use that would just not be okay today. And we just weren't really aware about that. And it's not like we were homophobic or, you know, anything like that, but it's just, it's, it, so yeah, I, I agree that. Uh, it's, it's the awareness, like, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a new generation. Um, obviously they, they have their issues too. We don't want the <laughs> Gen Z to think that they are the best, but um, I think at least when it comes to uh, awareness of social issues, they seem to really be uh, light, light years ahead of millennials and, and older. So sort of shifting gears from SDGs and education and whatnot, I want to go back to sort of the your um, career as an idol. So you partook in the year-end uh, NHK Kohaku Utagasen, uh, more commonly known as Kohaku. So um, I know it's sort of has changed in regards to its profile, especially the last few decades. Um, although I guess recently with COVID, a lot of people watched it. But you know, when you were on it, it was really like, you know, everyone watched Kohaku, right? It was like every single person watched it. So what was it like being on it at such a young age? And what was sort of the behind the scenes like uh, for the three years that you partook in the uh, Kohaku? Well, it was really exciting because I remember the first year I finished Kohaku, the next day I hopped on a plane and went to Hawaii because we were shooting a commercial there. And I remember uh, someone from, um, I think a neighborhood friend came up to me and said, hey, I just saw you on that red and white festival. Congratulations. And I thought, wow, even people from Hawaii saw me. And so that was kind of exciting. Um, behind the scenes, it was um, it was exciting. I think back then, if um, it was announced that you were on the Red and White Festival, my stylist and my, my agency uh, went to work right away to make three or four dresses for each different scene that you're in, in Kohaku. Mm. So um, I just remember, I thought, wow, this is really busy because getting fitted for a new dress sounds exciting, but it's a lot of work as well, <laughs> especially when you're when I was already busy. And then we would have these rehearsals back then. Um, I don't know if you still watch Kohaku, but they have those scenes where the senpais and the kohais get together and they, they have a theme if it's... Um, I don't remember what my theme was, but if it's social dancing, you know, people would get together and we would rehearse. And so that went on um, a few times and because everyone was very busy and we didn't really have strict labor laws back then. I remember going into rehearsals from like 11 p.m. and finishing at 1 a.m. and wow. going home, getting three hours of sleep and then getting up early in the morning uh, to go outside of Tokyo to promote my new single. So it was just very crazy back then. I, I mean, I think on average, I would probably have four to five hours of sleep. Wow. Yeah. It, is this, in, it was. and did, was this hard schedule just, was that sort of an industry norm uh, back then? And is it still kind of like that? Or you, you just mentioned labor laws. Are they a bit more strict now uh, because, because they enforce labor laws? Oh, they're much more strict now. I think the um, TV stations, they cut their lights off like at midnight. So no one can really work past that time now. Whereas before, back in the 80s, we would be there till like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. You know, wow. basically if the job needed to be done, it needed to be done. So. Wow. And yeah. so you're, you're in Kohaku. Um, 
very young age again. And do you, were there any acts when you participated that still sort of are embedded in, in your mind uh, in regards to other performers from that? Uh, I think it was 80, it was 82 to 84. To 83, then, 83, 83, 84, 85, right? Um, yes, so I remember the first year I finished Kohaku Utagasen. Um, I think a month later, I received a big envelope from Suizenji Kyoko-san. Do you know her? She's yeah. a um, famous uh, Japanese singer. But she had uh, taken photos of me during rehearsals. And I think her manager had taken some photos of me uh, during the actual live performance. And she wrote a really nice letter saying, hey, congratulations on your first appearance on Kohaku. She was actually emceeing that year. And uh, she said, these, you know, are just for Kinen. These are for you to keep for memory's sake and uh, good luck in your coming years. And I thought that was so sweet of her because I'm sure she's so busy. But for her to have, you know, found the time to do that, that was very nice of her. That's really cool, especially back then. It's not like the iPhone, right? It's not like you can just go boom and <laughs> take a picture. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You had to actually take pictures, <laughs> go and have developed. <laughs> Uh, exactly. You know, you're a pop idol teen, and then you eventually sort of begin to expand your areas into, you know, radio personality. There's the TV shows. When you were making this shift, was this sort of a conscious decision that you were pushing forward, or was it something more of the, you know, the, where your, your agency and the workplace was sort of advocating for? So when I was 21, I think I was recording my album. And I remember distinctively my manager, my manager said, um, this will probably be your last album because you know, you're now at the age where records and records or CDs, I think, don't sell anymore. And mm. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, so you, know, you can't keep singing. I think you're gonna have to branch into acting. And I just remember I was so sad because mm. I remember the first, uh four years of my career i was always sick when i was recording because i was so busy and i never had uh, a proper time to really uh, be ready and to prepare for my recordings and finally i was coming into you know a position where my voice was okay i had started learning to kind of learn how to sing and to express myself and i had ideas of what kind of albums i wanted to release or songs i wanted to release and then here my manager was saying, well, time's up, kid, you know, <laughs> you got to hit the road. So um, I just remember I was really sad and I had spoken to my father about it. And I remember my father said, you know, you don't have to stop singing. Because as long as you have one person who wants mm -hmm. to hear you sing, you should continue singing. And it doesn't mean you have to sing the pop songs because you can mm -hmm. start singing jazz. And um, I think from that year on, he and I would do joint concerts together. And um, yeah, and I, I started singing standard jazz songs. It was difficult because I'm so used to that, you know, that pop beat and he would go, no, that's not it. And he would stop me and he would, you know, um, but it, it was great. He would give me advice. And thanks to him, I was able to keep singing because, you know, your voice box is a muscle, right? I mean, if you really stop singing altogether and for some people, I think they're naturally good singers. I am not. So if I stopped using my voice, I'm sure my 
range would deteriorate. But thanks to him, I was able to keep up my singing. And during that time, I got an offer to do a musical, mm. which was uh, very rare for anyone from TV doing stage back then. But well, um, I was going to say, what, what, what's, what, which musical uh, were you part of? So the first musical I was in, um, I, um, I had a part of uh, Sandy in the musical Grease. And I loved that movie growing up, so that was really exciting. And then after that, I um, was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz for six years, or was it six years, five years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, those are pretty, pretty major roles there. <laughs> it was really nice. It was, yeah. And, you know, of course, being on stage, you learned how to sing differently. Um, so it was my chance to really grow as a singer. And then in 1996, I auditioned for the part of Cosette in Les Mis, Les Miserables. Mm. That was really difficult because that was way out of my range. But um, the key, the key was really out of my range. But I learned a lot. So I guess that's just part of the process. You're constantly learning. <laughs> Were the people around you in Broadway kind of different in regards to their approach towards art and in regards to sort of how they interacted with you in comparison to the pop scene? Um, oh, in theater? Um, well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, I wasn't, I, I was never felt left out, of course, but during the time when I was doing theater, I also, I was also very busy with, um, with TV work. So I would actually be doing drama and then i would go into rehearsals so it was just really a busy time for me mm -hmm. and of course some days my i didn't really know how to sing on stage so basically on stage you have to do two shows every day for 30 days i mean it's not like broadway where it's a long-running show for years and years but you know mm -hmm. to, to do two stages i remember wizard of oz to do two stages every day for 30 days. I think I did like 52 stages that month. I remember I woke up and I lost my voice. I just couldn't sing. And I yeah. just, but I still had to go on stage, you know, and I, I couldn't say to my manager, oh, I can't go into drama today because I have my stage. I just had to do both. So I just wow. remember I gave a very poor performance for a few days on stage. And I was like miserable because these kids have, you know, come to see Dorothy, and I was like, da, da, da. you know, it's just really bad. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, that seems to be a common theme. I mean, throughout your career, is just busy, 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 and <laughs> and I'm, I think this is a good sort of segue into, you know, you get married in '96, and then blessed with two two daughters. Do you feel like that point? of time, you know, having two, two kids as well as a marriage, did that change the way you approach work? I mean, it's almost a rhetorical question because it seems like it would be almost impossible to sort of keep running off these four or five hour, you know, sleep days. Oh my goodness. Yeah, definitely having um, children changed my lifestyle. I realized that work couldn't be my priority anymore. I would have to put my children's schedules first. So of course I had to speak with my agency, my manager, and we shifted everything. And I also realized that um, having 
children really widens so much of your perspective. You learn to be patient and um, you learn to be loving. And, you know, through them, I met so many great friends. And of course, um, jumping forward because my husband and I made the conscious decision to send them to an international school. It was it was really interesting. I just remember walking back into ASIJ thinking, wow, this is the school life that I missed. And here I am. I, I get it back through <laughs> through my children. And um, it was just it was really wonderful, you know, just to see how education worked in the Western sense or, or the ASIJ sense and how devoted the teachers and the you know, education specialists were. So it, it, it really opened me to a whole different world um, besides just, you know, show business and my work. And when you returned to ASIJ, I said, it's a two-parter question is, was it always sort of your intention from the time your daughters are very young to, to put them into ASIJ? And when you did, you know, go back to ASIJ as a parent, how are things different, if they were different at all? from when you left in 1982. Don't really remember me thinking, well, when I have kids, I'm going to put them at, you know, through international school. It's just that when my when we actually had our firstborn, um, my husband and I sat down and we both realized that we both went through the western or the american uh, education system. And um, when I had to transfer from ASIJ to a Japanese high school, I just remember I really struggled. Academically, yes, of course, but more so culturally, I couldn't understand so many of the school rules that were um, that they had, for instance, and maybe it was just especially a really strict school. But for instance, if my hair was longer than my shoulders, I would have to tie it and you know, or if my lips were dry, I couldn't wear a lip balm because they sh they would make a like a, they would shine. And apparently it looked very it looked like a delinquent. I, I don't know why. So I had dry lips through my high school years. It was kind of crazy. Um, and so like little things like that, I just, I just really couldn't accept. Mm. And, um, and we just realized we were so much more comfortable with the education that we had, um, we had growing up. So we decided that's what we would put our children through. Um, now, when I went back to SIJ, did I notice the difference? I just have to say, wow, you know, thank you to our parents <laughs> for putting us through the, you know, international school system. Of course, I was in Hawaii, so it was different. But um, I think even going to SIJ for that one year really made me realize, like I had mentioned, um, how, how wonderfully meshed the cultures were. Mm -hmm. And um, each culture, you know, the, the the different cultures were. And had I noticed it back then, I don't know. I just remember it was really comfortable. But going back as a parent of a child or a student at ASIJ, I realized how much effort and how much time and how much thought goes into educating, you know, the kids and the students. So, I, of course, I had a really deep appreciation of that. And I also was, um, I was also involved with PTA, a lot of volunteering. So I was able to see, you know, both sides, you know, from the parent side as well as the school side. And um, it was a really good experience, I, I have to say. 
That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how many people, and you probably know this better than I do. I think there's more and more people who are, are I guess, in comparison to the 80s and 90s, when we had, you know, a lot of expats from like places like IBM, those people came and they went, right? But now there's a lot more people who went as students who also send their kids there. Would you say, you know, with the parents you see around you at ASIJ, are there more than just you, for example, um, in, uh, in, in your daughter's grade level with, with parents who actually went to international schools themselves? Um, yeah, I, I actually uh, have a few uh, alums that I met when I was there at ASIJ and we had kids around the same time. So they're there with their kids. So that's that's kind of odd, but it was kind of exciting too, right? Like, yeah, this is where, you know, we used to play hooky, right? <laughs> like when we were in like in the school courtyard, which which our kids could never do now. I think they're so much more heavily monitored. I don't know how some on some days we were able to actually cut class, but um, back then, <laughs> but yeah, um, there are there are a few, yes, and of course there are. When I was anyway, when I was in uh, PTA, I remember when my kids were in middle school, because it was after the Lehman shock, there were a lot of Japanese parents, so parents who went through the Japanese school system and didn't want their children to go through the same system. So they yeah. opted, you know, for uh, an international school, which then they chose ASIJ. But they wouldn't understand the system as much. They they didn't understand how the parents were so involved, you know, or mm -hmm. how they could be involved, or they would, they couldn't understand how easily it was to um, approach a teacher to ask them a question about their children, because I I guess depending on the Japanese school you're in, you really couldn't do that. You couldn't go up to a teacher and say, hey, Mr. Harris, can I talk to you about my, you know? And I said, at ASIJ, you really can. I mean, you can't just walk in a classroom, but you can definitely email them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very open communication system, don't you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. I, I definitely, you know, see that even uh, where I work at, it's an international school, but primarily uh, Korean parents. And there is definitely that culture of just sort of, there's less direct of a line. Uh, whereas you said, you know, obviously no one can just step into a classroom. <laughs> that would be problematic, but it is very easy to just email someone and be like, hey, and, uh, there's definitely that direct line of contact, which seems to be lacking right. in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, public school systems in Japan and Korea. The final point here is um, I like to ask the guests what is coming up in the coming months, years. I know it's Corona time and, you know, everyone, a lot of people uh, have told me, you know, they're not sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, what, what is coming up in the next uh, few years? What is it? As a parent, um, well, my daughter is graduating this year, so we will be empty nesters. I don't know if I can handle it, but I will. Uh, <laughs> I will have to find a way. I just have to say having a college student, I know this doesn't really answer your question directly, but having a college student, um, she's in her second year, having seen her grow, you know, having left home, she's semi-independent, and then having her come back home. It's, it's, just, it's just really interesting, I mean, to see how um, your children grow as an individual and as a person. And, you know, when you talk about life or anything about uh, values, you realize, wow, when did 
all this get embedded in them? I don't know, but you just hope mm. you're, you've done a good job and that they'll be okay in the world. So um, I'm definitely, I, I will definitely be sad to see my younger one go off to college, to see her go off to college. But I'm also really, of course, excited for her as well. And, uh, and when they're gone, I guess I'll have more time to work, which I love. Like, I am so thankful that my career has spanned as long as it has. I feel very fortunate to be surrounded by great staff and, um, and I just really feel lucky, you know, um, it, I'm actually coming into my 40th year next year. Wow. Um, Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> See, this is what happens when you start at eight. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think in normal years, um, we would probably be thinking of doing a live concert um, and maybe touring, but of course, it's not like that anymore. So I'm I really don't have anything planned, although I do have some ideas. And um, yeah, I'm just really thankful that my fans have have been with me throughout the years. So I want to do something that shows my appreciation of the last 40 years. Gosh, 40, that sounds like such a long time, but yes. What a career. Yeah. So uh, we were just talking off air. You just, there's all these interactions you had with so many different people. And, uh, you know, I was mentioning that people said I kind of look like Wentz sometimes. They're like, oh, yeah, I know him. So it's like, yes. that's really cool. And yeah, that takes us right to the end here. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You're thank here. you so much. I hope I was able to answer all your questions. Okay. And um, yes, I hope a lot of people watch the podcast. Me too. Thank you. <laughs>